1977, Atari video game developer Warren Robinette was introduced to the influential text adventure Colossal Cave Adventure by one of his roommates. He thought it was amazing and was inspired to make his own version of the game for the Atari 2600, but as a graphic adventure instead. But there was one problem. Colossal Cave Adventure sat on a mainframe and took up hundreds of kilobytes of space as a text-based game, while the Atari cartridge only had four kilobytes available to it. Just how is he supposed to cram all that into such a little bit of space? His creation remains one of the most influential video games of the early console era. So today we're going to tell you the story of Adventure, originally released for the Atari 2600 in January of 1980. So stick around as we quest for the Enchanted Chalice on today's trip down memory card lane. Good afternoon and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 124th episode of our video game history podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week we'll tell you a story relevant to the current week in gaming history. It can be about a game, a console, a person, a technology, or maybe even something that you wouldn't expect. In doing so, we hope to teach you something new about it. What it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world in its legacy. This week, we'll learn all about Adventure, originally released for the Atari 2600 in 1980. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who is currently disappointed because I mentioned Easter eggs and he thought I was talking about food. He's my brother, Rob Casson. Rob, it's January. It's not even Easter. Why do you think I'd be bringing up eggs, Easter eggs, no less, in a video game podcast? Hey, man, I don't ask the questions. I just enjoy the egg. Do you like eggs? Yes. Yes, I do. What kind of eggs? What's your, what, how do you get eggs served to you? I mean, if it's breakfast and you got to have them scrambled, sometimes you a little uh, sunny side up or, uh, you know, over medium. Uh, or if you're feeling like a little more of a uh, dessert, you go with the deviled egg. And then just, you know, a hard-boiled egg every once in a while hits the spot. Okay. And an omelet, too. Omelets are always good. What about Eggs Benedict? I, I don't know that I've actually had that, so I can't say one way or the other. Okay. All right. Well, moving on from eggs to Easter eggs, but first... What are we playing? Uh huh. Well, Dave, this week has been some Rocket League, some Warzone, some RuneScape, and some Construction Simulator. Not much more than that. Nope. How about how about yourself? Rocket League, Warzone, and RuneScape. I don't think there's been anything else. Hmm. Seems like a light week. It was a light week. It was a very light week. So, adventure. Yes. Very. Very important game in history. Very, very innovative for its time. Have you ever tripped on it before? I cannot say that I had prior to learning about it for this episode. Um, had never seen it, had never heard of it. 
Uh, it happened to be quite before my time. I mean, it's before my time, to be fair. Uh, and that's yeah. saying a lot. Yeah, but you were also really into playing that old stuff. I was. I am. That's you still are, true. correct, yes. Yeah. You, you you are a lot more likely to stumble upon these things, even from before our time uh, with gaming, to, to yeah, see well, these. I, I mean, not really be... I mean, that particularly before my time in gaming, these were my time in gaming. These were the systems that were laying around the house before I really understood what video gaming was. Well, so. I mean, by the time I, I learned, it was, you know, PlayStation yeah. and Nintendo, so... uh Never really the Atari 2600. I couldn't even tell you if you took a Atari 2600 and removed all the labels and put it in front of me. I probably wouldn't even know that's what it was. I I don't know if I'd go that far. It's a very recognizable system. I mean, they're all kind of recognizable. I mean, I the you thing know, is, is like actually, I can't look at all of the different Ataris and know, oh, that's a 2600. I would look at them and be like, okay, well, that original one with the stick there is the original Atari, and these other ones are other models. On the same hand, I may give some credence to it. If I stuck an Atari 2600 and a Mattel television in front of you, do you think you'd know which was which? I do not think I would know the difference, Dave. I really don't, because I, I can't even tell you what the Mattel one looks like at the moment. I at least know the Atari probably looks like majority of other Ataris from the same time, where it was, you know, a rectangular box with some switches on top and the cartridge stuck in at the top. Sure. But I have no idea about the Mattel. What color was it? Um, I know that there was a brown one. Okay, good enough. But I think there probably was, was a black one, too. It was in the 70s. Everything was brown. Okay, so that's the one that I'm familiar with. I don't know if that's the 2600, though. That might be an earlier model, for all I know. No, the 2600 is the early model. It's the... Oh. Yeah, that's the that's the one. Well, then that's the only one I could tell you other than the original joystick with a button. Which is the Atari joystick. Y yeah. So anyway, adventure. So let's, so let's take an adventure, shall we? Ah, nice pun. <laughs> Didn't see that coming for this episode at all. Ah... Uh... Warren Robinette was in high school when he saw his first computer, which was introduced to him by his math teacher. That summer, he went to math camp, where he studied math for four to six hours a day with about two dozen other high school students. Rob, that sounds awful. What do you mean that sounds awful, Dave? A math camp sounds utterly awful. Well, you just don't love math enough. I don't. I don't. End of end of sentence. Here at math camp, Robinette learned how closely related math and computers really are. And looking back, he thinks that math camp might have sent him on the path to game development. He went to school, his undergraduate, studying electrical engineering and math. How about them apples? Can you relate? No, I can't say that I can. I didn't mm. study math. Math was just a part of the <laughs> curriculum. At the time, there were no computer science departments, but schools did offer programming courses, which Robinette took alongside art. As a result, he received his bachelor's from Rice University in 1974 with a composite major in computer applications to language and art. Afterwards, he took a job as a Fortran programmer for Western Geophysical. And while working for Western, he went to graduate school 
at the University of California, Berkeley in 1976 and received his master's in computer science. At Berkeley, he was fortunate to take a course from Ken Thompson, the co-inventor of Unix and the C programming language. How badass would that be to be able to take a class with the person who created like the 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 programming language like c is the basis for most modern programming languages i mean it would be pretty damn awesome because that that person did it all yeah very true as part of one of his courses in operating systems robinette was required to use c and in doing so he was given a strong foundation in the programming fundamentals that he would be able to use as his career moved forward. After graduate school, Robinette was offered a job designing data terminal software for Hewlett Packard. Despite this, he went to Atari's front office, filled out a job application, and was given an interview. It wasn't a good way to make dough, he later said of working at Atari, but I can't imagine a less sexy job than designing software for Hewlett Packard probably true probably true as an undergraduate at rice and as a grad student i was interested in computer graphics and writing software for video games was an interesting way to pursue that towards the end of the following year in november of 1990 1997 he was hired by atari to work on their games despite as he puts it showing up for said interview in a plaid used car salesman suit Hmm. nice i know i feel like that was just a classic style back then though well it really wasn't actually he was not a very social person and he told the story in a later interview basically his sister who was very fashionable wanted him to go to homecoming and took him shopping to get a nice suit and when he saw the plaid tacky as I'll get out used car car salesman suit. He knew that's what he was wearing to homecoming just to spite her. Nice. And so that's he did. Awesome. And he used it later on in his Atari interview, but it was the best suit he had because he wasn't really fashionable. So he had to rock it out. The first game he created for Atari was called slot racers released in 1978. Slot racers was a vehicular combat game in which players maneuvered their cars through a maze while firing missiles at their opponents and dodging missiles that are fired at them. Each time one of the cars is struck by a missile, whomever fires it gets one point. First person to 25 points wins. There was some variation in the game. For instance, there were four different mazes, and you could change other factors like missile speed and rate of fire, so on and so forth. Now, it's important to know at the time that Atari games were generally created by only one person, and that one person was given complete control on the creative direction and development of their games. So as they were finishing up one game, they were basically required to have a plan for their next game to show that they were able to remain productive. Because during this time, programmers were hired and paid yearly salaries and like most employers, Atari expected their employees to stay busy. So as Robinette is finishing up slot racers, he's invited to the Stanford Artificial Intelligence Laboratory by one of his housemates. Here, 
he's introduced to a game called Colossal Cave Adventure. Now, we've talked about Colossal Cave Adventure before. I think in more than one episode, truthfully, but I know for sure we covered it way back in episode 25 when we covered Contra, the Konami Code, and Cheat Codes in Video Games. And as it would have it, Cheat Codes in Video Games or Things Hidden in Video Games, it pretty much starts here with Adventure. Well, no, it pretty much starts with Colossal Cave Adventure because it had a cheat code in it. Color me corrected. Yeah, I'm glad you remember that, Dave, because that game does not ring any bells. Oh, well, I remember because it is the XYZZY is the code that uh, warped you from one place to another in the game. Oh. So Colossal Cave Adventure was a text based adventure game released for the pdp mainframe computers by will crowther in 1976 crowther showed it to some co-workers and one of his co-workers decided to expand on it and in 1977 they collectively released a more expansive version of the game now it's this 1977 version that robinette was exposed to now colossal cave adventure was the first well-known example of interactive fiction and pretty much the first well-known adventure game period. It's essentially a text-based game in which you explore a mysterious cave system that is rumored to be filled with treasure and gold. Now, Robinette loved the game. Uh, In an interview, he said that the first time he came across it, he sat in front of it for three to four hours playing the game. And he decided then and there that his next game was going to be Colossal Cave Adventure, but with Tolkien-expired elements that would have graphics and would have to be controlled by a joystick. I feel like three to four hours is kind of impressive for the time. For a game in that period? Yeah. Yeah. I would say so. I, I would definitely say so. But... It wasn't quite that simple as just making Colossal Cave Adventure graphically. First of all, it really hadn't been done before. So the question arises, how do you turn a text-based video game into a graphical game where now you have to use shapes to represent everything? There, there, like I said, hadn't been done. There wasn't a handbook for that. Next, how do you represent where you are in the game world? Up until this point, just about every single game on the Atari took place in a single room. Sure, there were ways to get that room to change its look, but you didn't move from room to room. You shot people in one room, and that was the end of the game. And you could restart it in a different shaped room, but that was it. Or the car racing one. First person of 25 in one room, or maze, won the game, and then you could change it. But there wasn't any games that had ever really tackled graphically at least hey i'm gonna move from this room to this room to this room that that was the only saw seen in text-based games at the time and probably most importantly how was robinette going to cram colossal cave which was about a hundred k in memory on a mainframe How was he going to cram that game into a Atari cartridge, which only had about 4K of memory? Damn. 
Now, there was one other issue um, not related to the game. He had a boss who wasn't keen on this idea. His boss was also familiar with Cave Adventure, but was pretty much convinced that there was no way you could take that game and cram it onto an Atari cartridge. So he flat out told him it was impossible and then he shouldn't work on it all. In a later interview, Robinette said that I already had an idea how I was going to do it and I didn't like this guy anyway. He did. He just didn't understand how Atari worked. He was a little bit older and had worked at Lockheed, the aircraft company, and told engineers what they should do if they're building an airplane. But these were video games and each young software engineer was coming up with his own ideas. This is how Atari worked. So I ignored him and I worked on it in secret for a month and produced a prototype that showed you could do it within the memory limitations. Was he happy? Hell no. He was mad that I defiled, defied him. Defiled? <laughs> I like defiled. Ooh. Uh-huh. Getting a little <laughs> weird over there, Konami. Fortunately, he couldn't fire me because I had already shown it to other people at Atari and the people in the marketing department liked it. So they wanted me to keep working on it. However, they told me to keep the rooms and the objects, but turn it into a room about Superman. What? That's that's because Atari's parent corporation, Warner Communications, owned the rights to the first Superman movie that was coming out later in 1979, and they wanted a game to market at the same time. But I thought I had a good idea, and I thought I had possibilities. And so every time this came up, we you know we had a meeting every couple of weeks. I'd say I'd do it if I have to, but I didn't want to. I mean, we, we got to stop and and be glad that he didn't do this because look what happened when Atari did make a movie uh, into a game. Yes. About the fourth time I said that I wasn't going to do it. One of my fellow designers, John Dunn, said that he'd take over my code and make the Superman game. My boss was once again pissed because, once again, I'd not done what I'd been told to do. In other words... I had to fight to to get the ability to execute my idea. Now, it's really fascinating how he managed to make this game work if you're into programming. I, I'm not going to go into it here. I'll give a little summary, but if you want to know the details, I'm going to link some articles in our show notes on www.memorycardlane.com. If you're into programming or you're, or you're into tech stuff, it, it's it's kind of fascinating. But to sum it up, for starters, he 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 basically took his inspiration from a lot of other games. You know, developers at Atari at the time, you know, you could walk through the halls and every office had a guy, you know, because games were made by a single guy. Every office had a guy making their own game. So he had the ability to see combat. He had the ability to see this game and that game and that game, basically, and, and take from them. So for starters... He used the memory register that was designed for the ball in games like Pong. That ball, which was really just a square, became the player in Adventure, which is a square. He used the memory register that was assigned to missiles. Uh, So in combat, you shoot people. Or in slot racers, you shot missiles from car to car. And he used those missiles, blew them up, And they became walls, additional walls, which is how he was able to represent different rooms in the game. And he also had the ability to make these like two, like 
high, too high, like two sprites high, little pixels, um, high resolution sprites. And he used that register to make all of the objects in the game. So basically he took all these programming tricks that programmers had made used to make other games and he put them all together to do something that no one had ever seen before. And somehow with all these limited resources, he managed to make the game. In an interview, he said, once I made the feasibility demonstration, I had another problem. Adventure was not a particularly interesting game. I'd proven that you could do it within 4k but it only had half a dozen rooms and one castle and one key and one dragon that chased you around. You could pick up objects, but there were only two objects and the dragon didn't do anything when it got to you other than buzz around you like an irritating fly. Hmm. But it had proved its point about a multi-screen game and that there were objects that you could pick up, which were things people hadn't seen before. It had enough promise that the marketing people could see that it was a game that was different from anything else. So expanding the game world beyond one screen was a pretty big step in itself. Because I had to fight to even get to work on it and make it the theme that I wanted, I was kind of puzzled about what to do for four months. It was a boring game as it stood, and I just didn't know how to make it more interesting. So I stopped working on it for a few months while I figured out how to complete it. Luckily, it wasn't on any schedule, and no one was pressuring me to finish it. My boss secretly just hoped that it was going to go away. <laughs> the original game was a grand vision. Hey, I can turn this text adventure into a video game, but to make it into something fun, it wasn't just one more grand idea. It was like eight or ten little ideas that would fit into the programming space that I had left. That required inventing more objects and creatures that were interesting, I figured out how to make the dragon more interesting. If he caught you, he'd eat you. And then once he could eat you, I needed to figure out a way to bring you back to life, which was flipping a button on the console to reincarnate your avatar. However, if the dragon just kept chasing you around and eating you and eating you, that still wasn't particularly exciting. So that's when I came up with the idea of a sword that you could use to kill the dragon. And that was quite a good balance. Sometimes he was chasing you, and even if you had the sword, he might eat you. Sometimes you'd kill him if you had the sword. If you didn't have the sword, then you'd have a problem. Occasionally you could escape from the dragon. Particularly if you were in a maze. But the point is, it was balanced. The dragon was pretty good at that point, and I liked it well enough to make three copies of him. That was efficient pro programming-wise, because I used three calls to the same bunch of programming. So... Needless to say, Robinette was kind of a smart guy, and he did a lot of really neat things that people hadn't seen with programming, and he managed to get Adventure made. He worked on it, he programmed it, did all the stuff, and it was released sometime in January of 1980. So let's talk about the game. So to modern audiences... Atari games are kind of hard because you need a lot of imagination. It looks like a bunch of squares moving through rectangle maze. But it really had a great story in it. Um, in an adventure, the player's goal is to recover the enchanted chalice that an evil magician has stolen and hidden in the kingdom, and you have to return the chalice to Golden Castle. The kingdom is made of a total of 30 rooms that have 
obstacles and enemies uh and there are three castles golden white and black the kingdoms guarded by three dragons the yellow named yorgle the green named grundle and the red named rindle and the dragons basically will attack you they'll protect themselves they'll flee from various items it's weird stuff it's just some it's some weird stuff so basically you got to get the you got to pick up these obstacles one of which is that sword to defeat the dragon and um you have to get the good chant to chalice and then get the heck out of there which is you know a game that had a whole story in graphics that really was something that was not seen at the time now some of these objects can include keys that open castle doors there was a magnet that pulls items towards the player. There was a bridge, a magical bridge that you could use to cross certain obstacles. And of course the sword. You can only carry one object at a time, but you could drop it and pick up other things. And uh, yeah, and move through the castle to, to do it. So before we move on, before I pass it on to Rob and we learn what people of the day thought about the game, I want to take a moment and really stress how innovative of a game adventure was for its time. It was the first game that stitched together multiple screens to make a single larger game world. Like I said, most games took place in one screen. This was one of the earliest graphical games that allowed you to pick up and drop objects. Text adventure games had been doing it forever but adventure brought the concept of picking up and dropping objects over to graphical games. The ability to resurrect yourself when you died by hitting a button on the console, pretty much one of the earliest examples of a continue game option in all of video games. That's pretty cool. And it had autonomous creatures. You know, each creature had a subroutine that allowed it to decide during each programming cycle which direction to move so the creatures would test the environments for objects that were around them and react to it so for instance the bat would steal objects from you the way it was programmed the creatures all moved in the castle no matter where the player was so the whole castle basically stayed alive and moved and reacted to things no matter where the player was and that was another concept that was very unique to games. Also, the highest difficulty level, because you could flip a switch on the Atari to do difficulty 1, difficulty 2, or difficulty 3. One, for instance, was not uh, all 30 rooms. It was a very limited amount of rooms, and the enemies were easier. Two was the full game. And then the highest difficulty, which was level 3, would randomly place all the objects through the castle. Now, this random generation of a game, a map, something like that, that also really wasn't seen in games at the time. These are, there's just so many firsts are unique things that Adventure it did. It's really hard not to, I mean, it's really hard in the modern context to understand where it fits in video game history, but it, it has, it's important. It did so many things that are just so commonplace and so many of those things got their inspiration from adventure it's important y'all rob it's important obviously did people 
think that it was good. Well, Dave, people definitely had a lot of good things to say about this game. Okay. You know, in 1980, Space Gamer said that adventure is a good game as video games are measured. It's neither as interesting nor as complex as Superman, but it shows okay. great promise for things to come. They did say if you have access to the Atari game computer, it's an entertaining cartridge to have. Okay. In 1981, Video called Adventure a bold departure from the usual video game. It's one cartridge that every Atari owner will certainly want to add to their library. Okay. And now, of course, it's a little biased, but in 1995, Atari HQ did have this to say about Adventure. That at first glance, you may dismiss it as a low-quality game. But just remember, looks aren't everything. Warren Robinette, the game's creator, managed to create a game that's light on visuals, but high on gameplay. And it has a secret. Sure does. And in 1998, All Game Guide said that their rich gameplay more than makes up for the game's rudimentary graphics and sounds, and three different games, including a variation that randomly scatters the objects around the kingdom, guarantees maximum replay value. It's true. And, you know, with the users, it was pretty pretty much the same. A lot of good things to say, although, as always, there is some negative. Uh, but we'll kick it off with Overdrive from HonestGamers.com, who starts off saying that when one thinks of the Atari 2600, odds are that the words role-playing game will not immediately spring to mind. After all, this incredibly simple video gaming machine was far more suited to simple arcade-style games where the primary goal was to stay alive until the game speed exceeded the player's reflexes. More complex games with set goals were produced far less frequently and often were lost among the glut of crudely translated arcade games and cheap attempts to capitalize off popular movie licenses. But, as adventure proves, even the most simple of systems can create a being of pure beauty. A game that could arguably be considered the inspiration for games such as The Legend of Zelda and any other game in which concepts such as mapping terrain and finding the correct use for items are of equal or greater importance than having hair trigger reflexes. And where this game truly shines is in its replay value. There are three levels of challenge with the third level being far superior to the other two. While levels 1 and 2 are exactly the same each time you play them, the third level is different each time. Using the large world map that the second level has, the third level places each item, dragon, and bat in a completely random location. You may start a new game only to find the ferocious red dragon right beside you, or maybe the chalice will be right at the beginning of the screen with you, but you'll still have to find the yellow key to get into your castle. With a near endless number of quest possibilities, this mode of play is quite addicting and definitely plays a huge role in this game getting the superior rating that it boasts. And let's face it, this game does nothing to be undeserving of being rated a 10. When compared to other games of its general era, Adventure has to be considered a paragon of excellence. I would even go as far as to say this is one of a slim handful of Atari 2600 games that actually has the ability to stand the test of time and be considered entertaining even today. Regardless of how technologically challenged the Atari 2600 is compared to today's gaming systems. 
Next up, we have Sandor Swartz from Moby Games, who mentions that everyone will tell you that this is the first video role-playing game of all time. So I will tell you something new. This is the first game to genuinely scare the player. You suspect the cup is in the next room, which you haven't entered yet. You suspect there may be a dragon, or worse, two dragons guarding it. But you don't know. There could be nothing there at all. So you tentatively move the character up into the next screen, and the red dragon is immediately upon you and snaps at you with a loud sound. You desperately try to push away, but while you escape its jaws, you can't get around the beast and down off the screen to safety. It snaps at you again, and you flail around trying to get away. After another 10 seconds of moving around in close calls, you're swallowed into the belly of the beast. Or, you've just started the game. You don't have the sword. It's locked in some castle somewhere. But all three freaking dragons immediately appear and chase you around. Every time you turn a corner, there's one of them. You find a key, but they dog you to the gates of hell. There's a complex interaction between the characters and items in rooms. So many of them, too. Just to name a few, the yellow dragon is scared of the yellow key, the red dragon will only guard the white key and the cup, while the green one will guard anything black as well as the bridge and the cup, and that infamous bat. Everyone knows about the bat. And for those that don't, it steals your stuff. It's kind of a dick. Yep. The sword, they think, should have been drawn a little differently. For years and years, I thought it was an arrow. And imagine that we're supposed to stick the end of the arrow into the dragons. But it only dawned on me in 2004 that it's a regular sword with a handle. Not an arrow. And it actually points the other way. The single most annoying thing about the game, however, is that in Game 3, it is often the case that you have a situation where it starts out with the yellow key locked up in the yellow castle, or the black key in the black castle with the cup. Are more complicated situations yielding impossibilities, like the white key locked in the black castle, the black key in the white castle, or all three keys locked among the three castles. Warren Robinett took measures to ensure the cup always started out locked in the white or black castles, but... You think he could have at least bothered to make the game potentially solvable every time. I find it really annoying to successfully slay all the dragons, only to find that there are no keys anywhere. First of all, the bottom line. Adventure is one of the few programs for the Atari 2600 that is actually a game. Yes, you heard me. Most of the so-called games for the Atari 2600 are unworthy of the status of game. To be a game, you have to be able to win, and you have to be able to lose. The things that pass for games on this system are almost exclusively without any goal. You just shoot, avoid aliens, asteroids, ghosts, cats, rabbits, nuclear missiles, whatever's coming at you faster and faster until you lose. That's not a game. It's a freaking waste of time. And the few true games are really pretty pathetic for the most part. Mostly, it's a competition against a really stupid artificial intelligence where you and the computer each control a character which is on equal terms. Whoever shoots the other the most times in the time allotted wins. Whoever catches the most fish wins. Whoever gets four X's or O's in a row wins. But Adventure is unlike everything else. It is a masterpiece. 
And to all those naysayers who have the nerve to say that it's no good because of lousy graphics, you are obviously unqualified to make such an obtuse comment. Good graphics are not possible for the Atari 2600. You merely demonstrate that you are pitifully unaware that the programmers were limited to 4 kilobytes of ROM and 128 bytes of RAM. You heard me. The entire program for the entire game must be no bigger than 4 kilobytes. No, not megabytes. Kilobytes. Yes. 4. For the whole game. And every stored variable can exceed 128 bytes. At a whopping processing speed of under 2 megahertz. The entire game console had an all the computing power of what is considered a very low-end microcontroller today. The unspoken computers all around which are relinquished to minimal tasks, like controlling the clock in your microwave oven. To complain about its graphics is to demonstrate one's ignorance of the fact that it is impossible to have fantastic graphics in a game limited in size to 4 kilobytes and RAM to 128 bytes. So why do I rate the graphics at 5 stars? Because it's as good as it could have been. No amount of additional effort could have made it better. Nowadays, programmers are not limited by hard drive space or RAM, but merely by man hours in creating the program. Not so with games of this era. I would go as far as say that this game is about the most powerful, interesting game that is even theoretically possible for the Atari 2600. This is coming from someone who made from scratch a digital clock using a microcontroller. I can appreciate the brilliant efficiency, above all else, employed in this program to make, few, to make use of what few miserable resources were available to their utmost limit. And then I come to read that one reviewer even had the nerve to suggest that there are actually other games for the Atari 2600 that are better than this. To suggest that? is the pinnacle of absurdity. Like Fantasy Star for the Sega Master System, this one game is the only single game for the entire console system it goes with that, for the lack of, would make the entire console unworthy of a look back. So what if your character's a square? And so what if your dragons look more like ducks? There's plenty scary when you're chasing you around and you don't know where the sword is. I'm pretty sure they were ducks when I was a kid. I mean, yes, they definitely looked like ducks. I would not have thought dragons without having read a little bit more about it and understanding that they they straight up look like duck or geese. Yeah, they do. All right, so let's talk about what this game is probably best known for, which is the invention of what we now call an Easter egg. In 1976, Atari was bought out by Warner Communications, and pretty quickly there was a culture clash between the Warner New York executives and all of the programmers, the Californian programmers that already worked at Atari. The New York executives made the decision to completely remove the names of game developers from their products. Now, there's said to be a number of reasons for this. One, they didn't want their programmers to gain any notoriety, which would make it easier for other companies to recognize good programmers and recruit them away from Atari. That one kind of makes sense. Two, Atari executives didn't want to give their programmers any more bargaining chips that could help them demand more money. So at the time, 
Atari programmers were only making about $22,000 a year. And if you'll recall, about one per only one person made each of these games, right? So they were essentially paying someone $22,000 a year to make this game. If we're being generous with the cost of offices and resources and things like that, let's say, let's double it. Let's say 44000 to make a game that took... I mean, most of these games took three or four months. They didn't even take a full year. And in Adventure's case, they were selling... They sold more than a million copies of Adventure at, I don't know, $25 a pop. So they were making money hand over foot and they just didn't want to lose that leverage. And all of the programmers knew it. You know, they they weren't paying royalties either. And so you have these programmers who are being paid a flat fee of $22,000 for the year. They're making two to three games for Atari that are, not all of them were million dollar sellers, but I mean, chances are they were making a million dollars per game, even if it wasn't a good seller, you know? So you have these greedy New York executives and and you have the the programmers who want a better life, who want more, you know, that that's just that simple. Um, a lot of programmers left because they didn't want to deal with the culture, uh, but some like Robinette stayed um, and continued the work. So Robinette's working here on adventure, as as we know, because we're talking about the game. And he's finished. And there is roughly about 5% of the memory left on the cartridge. Not a whole lot whatsoever. So he decides to code a little secret into the game. He programs something stupidly obscure. um, Seriously, stupidly obscure, right? So... To sum, not to summarize it, I'll tell you exactly. You have to set the game. Uh, you can only find this on difficulties two or three. And then you have to retrieve one object, which is called the gray dot. It's a single gray pixel that's stuck to the wall somewhere in a castle. And you have to bring that gray dot along with two other items to a specific corridor, which makes a wall blink rapidly. And if you push through the rapidly blinking wall... You'd go through it, and you were brought into a room that displays the words created by Warren Robinette in text, which continuously changes color. Nice. Now, Robinette didn't tell anyone because he didn't want it to be discovered prior to the game being published. I mean, unfortunately for him, it only took roughly about a month for someone to find it. Um it was found by a 15-year-old boy from Salt Lake City named Adam Clayton, and he wrote the following letter to Atari. Dear Atari, I'm so excited about your computer and the strength behind it, but I don't have the money. Relatable. <laughs> yep, definitely. Would you please send your complete set of brochures about the peripherals and software that you plan to have in the future? I am very proud of your computer. I've compared. You only need more software and peripherals to back it up. Please hurry with the letter. I'm impatient. Sincerely yours, Adam Clayton. P.S. I have the Atari TV game and the adventure game program, and I have found something strange. I went into the Black Castle. 
I went all over those rooms and I found a dot in the following room. And he drew he drew a little diagram of the room on on the letter. I talked I took the dot in the room by the gold castle that looks like this room. And he drew that room out on the letter. I went out of the kingdom as the arrow points after I put two objects in the room. And I came into a room that looked like this. And he draws what the Easter egg room looks like. I just thought I'd tell you because I want to. Could you please comment on this? Thanks. <laughs> so, That's awesome. Now, this letter is still out there. I put a link to it in our show notes if you'd like to see it yourself. It's all handwritten. It's pretty cute. Um, but by the time it made it to its uh, by, made its way to Atari, Robinette, like all the other programmers, had already left the company. So Atari tasked some designers with finding the responsible code because, you know, that's weird. Let's get that out of there. Supposedly, the employee who found it said that if he were to fix it, he would only change it to fixed by Brad Stewart. <laughs> and fixing it would requ- would require creating another ROM chip, which would cost Atari about $10,000 a tool. So this early on in sales, that was a really pricey change for them. And they just weren't sure if they wanted to put the money forth. Now, in the end... There was a man named Steve Wright. Now, Steve Wright was the director of software development for Atari, and he argued for leaving it in because he believed that it gave players additional additional incentives to find it and play this and other games, it turns out. And in the same conversation, he equated the concept to people finding Easter eggs on Easter morning, and the term just stuck. Steve Wright in fact, made it an official policy moving forward that all future Atari games include an Easter egg. Now, this pretty much mostly took on the form of the developer's initials somewhere in a game. You know how you get a high score and it's a whole score list and, you know, you're wondering whose initials are those? Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of those were developer initials and that was kind of the Easter eggs that most people did. But basically... You know, Robinette hit a room in there. Some 15-year-old kid found it. And then some director at at Atari said, hey, that's kind of like finding Easter eggs on Easter morning. And that's where we get Easter eggs from. That's where the whole concept of it comes from and, and the term and everything. And to its credit, Adventure pretty much popularized the concept of these little hidden gems and games. So here we are. Hell yeah. Right? It's a great thing you started there. That's it is. So, Adventure was a hit, but as we said, Robinette left Atari. He went and he founded The Learning Company. So, The Learning Company produced productivity tools like the Writing Center. Um, I know there was like the ABCs of typing, if I'm not mistaken. It also produced the Reader Rabbit series, Super Seekers... Super Solvers, Fisher Price games. It made some licensed titles for Arthur, Scooby Doo, and Caillou. At some point, they started buying out competing software companies like Broderbund and MECC. And when they did so, they gained the licenses for the Carmen San Diego series and the Oregon Trail series. Rob, we did an episode on the Oregon Trail. Indeed, we did. And we learned all about the Oregon Trail and the MECC, the, the company MECC. 
Um, uh, yeah, Dave, I, I believe we actually did. We did, and we learned about them and what they did until they were bought out here at the by the learning company. Now, the learning company itself was short-lived. In 1996, a company called SoftKey purchased the learning company. It was a hostile takeover. They bid $606 million for it and won. They fired pretty much all of the, the staff, uh, current staff of the learning company, and they changed their own name from SoftKey to the learning company. So, yeah, hostile takeover. And if and if Wait. I'm not and if I'm not mistaken, Robinette left as part of all that mess. And pretty much since then, he's done more academic stuff. He's worked on virtual reality projects for NASA, and he's done some VR projects for the University of North Carolina more modernly. Um, in 2016, he announced that he was going to write a book called Adventure Annotated, which he was going to tell the entire story of adventure in detail and began taking pre-orders on it. And as of 2022 or 2023, which it is now there's still, it still has not been released. In fact, all we have is the table of contents, which is on his website. So maybe someday adventure annotated will be released to the world. And that my friends is the story of Warren Robinette adventure and the invention of the Easter egg. So there you go, Rob. There you go, Dave, the invention of the Easter egg. Thanks to adventure. Thanks to adventure. So speaking of adventure, like I said, we did the colossal cave adventure back in episode 25. And sometime last year, we did an episode on the Oregon trail. If you'd like to check out either of those episodes, you can do so on our website at www.memorycardlane.com. Also on our website, you can find our smiling faces if you want to put a little, uh, you know, the ugly mug to the voice. I, uh, shockingly, one week into the year, have the entire calendar for 2023 up on our website. So, woohoo. Woo-hoo! You can see every single episode that we're going to do from now till the end of the year. And there are links to email us uh, underneath each episode. If you'd like to share your own anecdotes and have us share your reviews on games instead of the stuff we find online, we would love for you to be a part of the learning we do week in, week out. Uh, you can also find links to our Discord, where we frequently can be found playing video games. Uh, maybe you just want to come and argue with us. Or you can find links to our social media. I am on various platforms, as David is wrong. And Rob, where can people find you these days? I am on twitch.tv forward slash F-A-T-B-O-I-R-I-P-Z. That you are. All right, ladies and gentlemen, each week we tell you a story relevant to the current week in gaming history. This week, we told you the story of adventure. We tell you these stories in the hope of teaching you something new about the topics, what they took from the world as their inspiration, or what they gave back to the world as their legacies. One of the best parts about teaching is that while we teach, we learn. We frequently go into each episode not having a strong basis in these episodes and so we learn 
which is pretty awesome. I'm very thankful to have a chance to do that week in, week out. As part of our commitment to the learning process, we like to go around and talk about our biggest takeaways for each episode. So, Rob, what did you learn today? Well, Dave, I think that it would be that this game is where Easter eggs got started. I mean, you know, I never really thought of that, like that a lot of games don't have them. And it's kind of a cool little thing that you find throughout the game. Um, but it's kind of cool to know that there was actually like a game. Obviously, there had to be, but it's cool to know that this is the game that started all of that. Um you know, I'd never seen it. I did actually watch some uh, playthrough of this and everything and got to see them finding that room uh, with where it said that and everything. And it was you know, a very cool little idea. It's it just, yeah, it's really cool to know that and uh, know that something that started this this far back is actually a concept that still goes today and is one of the most fun things about some games, in my opinion, because some of those Easter eggs are damn funny. Well, it's a pop it's a pop culture concept, too. You know, um, if you look at the Wikipedia every Pixar movie ever, every Pixar movie ever ready player one, it's right on its Wikipedia. The whole plot of ready player one uh, is pretty much a, it, it, the story's adventure. I mean, you have to find magical objects in these mazes that are, you know, digital avatar mazes. It, pretty much adventure is the plot line to ready player one. Um, so there you go. Hmm. It's, it's a popular popular culture concept that still exists to these days but yeah easter eggs are fun easter eggs are in movies easter eggs are in video games easter eggs are in art easter eggs are everywhere uh and so and... you you say that and now it makes me question obviously this is the first one that happened in video games or at least that we can find easily documented but i how long before that had they existed like i guess do you happen to know the first ever I, well, I mean, we really didn't have a phrase for him before this, so that's fair. I don't, you know, I don't, it, I don't. Maybe you would just call it hidden things in movies before that. Hey, look, so and so hit this. But even then, I mean, well, I would say movies were limited, but no, by 1976, we had 50 years of movies, roughly. So, indeed, we did. So, I guess it'd be kind of cool to know what uh, where that first started in in popular media, but. Anywho, that's what I learned, or that's my my big takeaway is, uh, you know, the first video game Easter egg and uh, how it continued creating a legacy. I mean, it's also, you know, one of the first role playing games and started the legacy for many games that would become some of my favorite. Mm -hmm. So all in all, a game that I had never heard of, that's uh, pretty freaking awesome. So that's my big takeaway. What about you, Dave? It was fun to dive into this. I had some familiarity with it. Just in general, I mean, I, I mean, when you're as big of a video game geek as I am, you kind of know some things. Knowing that this is where Easter eggs came from is, you know, kind of, I'd say, knowledge that just the above average gaming geek has. To be fair, um, and of course, we we looked at it when we did the episode on cheat codes. This is something that pops up, and you know, when when you have that conversation, so. Um, so it wasn't really new to me. Colossal Cave Adventure and Adventure wasn't really new to me. But what was probably most fascinating about getting to dig into it this time was that they had to take Colossal Cave Adventure, which existed as 100 plus kilobytes on a mainframe server, and turn it into a graphical game that existed in four kilobytes on a cartridge. And the innovation and 
programming skill that it took to do that is amazing to me to be honest with you i mean this man did um, awesome things he did awesome things it yeah no you got a point there dave i didn't consider that when i was thinking about it but that is a pretty freaking impressive thing to think about he programmed ai like the creatures in this game like that one reviewer said like the red dragon only responds to the white chalice or the white object and the green dragon only responds to this like he programmed AI subroutines so the creatures have a life of their own and the castle moves. Every room is moving no matter where the player is. Uh, now, that's not as efficient as like the stuff we do nowadays where like we don't want the things we don't see to move because they just waste memory. But they didn't know that at the time. So the fact that he just created this, the fact that he created a rudimentary AI and a living, breathing environment over multiple screens and four kilobytes out of nowhere he didn't have anyone to teach him how to do it or hold his hand or anything like that like he did this and in doing so created like one of the earliest like the earliest graphical adventure game of all time it's just it, like when you boil it down to that i just think it's an it's an amazing story it absolutely is davis for a game that i had never heard of it's quite influential. Ron Robinette is a really good guy. So, um, but that's adventure, and we took an adventure, Rob. So, yay! Woo! Adventure! All right, kiddo. Before I take it out of here, what would you like to add to today's episode? Well, Dave, as always, I do want to take one quick moment to say thank you to everyone for listening. It means the world to us, and we're glad to have you along for the journey. So, hope you continue listening, and hope you enjoy. Very true. All right, folks. Well, next week, we're going to tell you the story of Resident Evil 2, originally released for the Sony PlayStation on January 21st, 1998. As part of its story, we'll learn about an early development version that was completely scratched, causing Capcom to bring in an entirely new team and start from scratch. What led to this reboot and how did it affect Resident Evil games moving forward? Well, we'll answer these questions and more as we revisit Raccoon City on yet another trip down memory card lane. Do the thing. Do ba ba da ba ba do da.